0: It's the perfect choice for podcasters, so make sure to check it out. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's ancho R.fm. Back to the show. The music world moves fast. Want to stay up to date on the latest albums and get in-depth examinations with the artists? Check out Consequence of Sound, the podcast, bite-sized album reviews for the music fan on the go who wants to stay in the know, and much more. Subscribe to the series on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider and let the writers of Consequence of Sound steer you right. Check it out at consequenceofsound.net/cospodcast. Consequence Podcast Network.
2: out there welcome back to this must be the gig i am sure you are very excited for today's episode today we also have in the studio with us as always engineer adam
0: hey hey it's like i gotta say it it's my catchphrase yeah
2: yeah, yeah. very good catchphrase hey. original
0: yeah i can I see like the it. t-shirts now
2: it's baseline thank you, you know? You'll connect with lots of people.
0: More like Outer Space Line. And then I winked. I'm just feeling extra cool because we had one of the legends of the golden era of hip-hop on the podcast.
2: Mm -hmm. It's weird to also call a legend who is still living a legend. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And I did call him that, too. Yeah,
0: I I remember.
2: Today on the podcast is the be real of Cypress Hill.
0: Yeah, you might know them.
2: No you might know them. Oh, you
0: might know them from Insane in the Brain, which is like one of the most insanely popular songs of all time.
2: That doesn't get out of your brain.
0: Released in ninety three, their teen debut. 80s people yeah, right? it's true. Released in ninety three <laughs> debut in 91 they've been just incredibly important in the hip-hop scene ever since southgate california's pride
2: if you can hear that clinking clinking in the background it's our new podcast dog pod puppy pod puppy we'll post pictures <laughs> of pod puppy she is wonderful and her name is buffy She is Sorry teeny to derail tiny the conversation teeny
0: tiny so teeny tiny she needed to be brought into the studio to live this greatness and with us our feet Do you have anything to say, Buffy? No, just going to lie on my shoe? Okay, that's
2: cool too. (laughs) Firstly, welcome back to the people that have been tuned in from day one. I know you, I see you, thank you. It's been an incredible journey so far. And then to you new people, this podcast is really just to, to give you a little bit of a backstage pass to the world of live music. So if you've ever really wondered what happens behind the scenes, even just a little hint into that green room, into the backstage, guess what? We go there. We go there.
0: And this week we go there with Be Real talking about striking out on his own in the shadow of the legend Cypress Hill became, of seeing the legends himself when he was young, growing up,
2: And the way that he speaks about his peers is one of the most indelible things I've ever seen and heard because it is very rare where you get a person of that stature in that space speaking about other people in his industry with such high regard. He shows through the chat that he really understands the industry. He's as
0: excited to talk about Dr. Dre and Busta as he is the young guns coming up, and that's so exciting to see somebody with that stature, and believe me, he knows he has that stature, Mm -hmm. but also somebody who really wants to give back and keep the art form living and breathing.
2: Without further ado, this is me and Be Real. Enjoy! So you're on your way to the studio. What do you have planned for today
3: i have a a platform called Be real t v which we do a uh, live broadcast from on our uh, facebook live and in our actual website bereal.tv, t oh. v and uh our 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 dash radio channel so we do uh we do a daily broadcast and uh you know just pretty much Having fun informing people about uh, the things we got going on, and mm. you know just talking about everyday everyday things, so you know it's uh it's almost like a podcast pretty much
2: <laughs> so I'm stealing you a little bit of your time before you get to talking about your day and everything so thank you I feel, oh yeah well I feel you know, good.
3: <laughs> thank you ours ours don't start till till 4 4 mm. p.m mm. pacific time here so you know i got plenty of time in between <laughs>
2: <laughs> so that's amazing to to be part of a project like that especially with how connected you can now be to your fans directly that must feel really wonderful yeah. to be able to actually chat to them one-on-one as well
3: well yeah you know throughout my career with uh, with Cypress Hill, you know, one of the things that we always manage to do is interact with our fans in some capacity. And when I started this platform about nine years ago, it was, you know, partially because of that, you know, that mentality to be able to connect with your fans, interact and maintain a presence and let them know what you're doing, you know, and uh it's it's been great it's constantly in growth and it's something that we built out that became valuable to us now we have other artists coming to promote in terms of music or a new movie they might have coming out or a tv show you know or or you know we we also have athletes of of all sorts come through and visit us now you know so it became a platform For myself and what I was doing with Cypress Hill and it expanded into actually being a platform for other artists to come and promote, you know, themselves and what they have going on. And and to me, that was a a great thing because, you know, that that's why I started it. It wasn't just for me. I mean, initially. You know, it was to get some some our information out there. But when I realized we had something strong, I you know I wanted to invite everyone to come.
2: That totally makes sense considering the type of music you've made in the last you know a few decades and the projects that you've been a part of. It totally makes sense that you are wanting to create a community because I think a lot of artists forget that that's actually what probably fuels you and inspires you a lot. I'm sure it's like that for you, yeah.
3: yeah, it's almost like a fan club, but you know <laughs> slightly <laughs> yeah slightly different, you know, but it it's it it's uh yeah, it's definitely a community, and uh people love the fact that you would take your time to interact with them as as you know fans of an artist that they follow,
1: mm.
3: f- whether it's a new fan or someone who's been following you the whole you know your whole ride, you know mm. so. It's, it's been a great experience and, you know, we're always constantly looking to expand the growth and, and just do different things, you know, and keep, keep it the, fresh. The, the new up and coming <laughs> artists. Yeah. Keep it fresh and, and keep new artists coming through, you know, as well as established because mm-hmm. it's easy for us to get, you know, established artists coming through, but you know, where you get more satisfaction is when you're a part of breaking a new artist, you know, or maybe shedding light on someone who eventually becomes you know, the next break or Kendrick Lamar or whoever else. You know what I'm saying? So
2: it's exciting. You know, we, we
3: take satisfaction as that.
2: And especially because you're obviously coming out with a new album and you have a lot of projects going on at the same time. I can imagine for you hearing what other people are doing and being inspired by that and being able to like spread that quote-unquote gospel, is kind of your way of also saying thank you and also yeah. really moving the industry because, as you said, so many people could just talk to legacy acts all the time, but the truth is bringing up people who don't have that platform or don't have access to that, I think, is really going to be the way forward because it's so easy to do that yeah. now as well.
3: Exactly. You know, uh, things are more more accessible now, and that's that's great, you know, because... You get a lot of talented people coming through now that you don't have that middleman getting in the way or, you know, changing what that artist might be. You know, the, it's it's given way to a lot of independence. And uh, I think that's a good thing because you can have both. The industry is that big now and, you know, everybody likes something different. So, you know, you can have these different faces and these different models of how, to put out and how to sell a record, how to market and promote a record, you know. So it's it's a it's a good it's a great time, you know. Obviously, the, um, the, you know, in the recording industry, there's always drama and there's always difficulties. But you know, in terms of the creative, yeah, you can get your art out there a lot faster than you know, you used to.
2: Looking at the landscape now and where the music industry is at the moment, why did you feel it was important for a new Cypress Hill album? What was it about this moment that meant you needed to release this album now?
3: It wasn't really that we needed to, it's that we wanted to. You know, it's been (laughs) something that uh, we had talked about for a while in doing another album with DJ Muggs because our last album, you know, we didn't have too many songs from. He didn't produce the album as as uh, traditionally he would have and you know since that last album rise up we hadn't had another you know cypress hill album or or songs for that matter so you know it was something that you know we felt we wanted to do something we felt that we should do for our our core fans that had been you know with us for the 27 years and the idea you know, just like a conceptually, an idea that we thought was, was great. And, you know, as an artist, you want to get that out to people, you know. And uh, even if it was an eight-year layoff, we've, we've been present in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, festivals and tours and shows and whatnot, and obviously social media and whatnot. That helps you keep face out there. But in mm-hmm. terms of music, we hadn't put something new out there in a while, and we felt, you know, We didn't want to put something out just to put it out. We wanted to put out the right thing. So we, you know, we sat down and talked about, you know, what we could do. And Muggs had an idea to do the the theme Elephants on Acid. And, you know, we sort of built around that. You know, it took quite a while before we got it done because, you know, we're very meticulous. You know, Muggs' production and, and, you know, what we really want. To sound as a whole in terms of just throwing songs together so it it took some time you know to 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 get out there for us to get it pretty much in a place where it was presentable and uh you know we finally got it to that place and you know this uh (laughs) this adventure elephants on acid (laughs) you know the first the first part which is the creative is now done so now it's about the ride now you know where Mm. we take in terms of live shows and presenting it to people and all that stuff.
2: So So you said you're a little bit meticulous about your actual creating and that process of recording and writing. Are you meticulous at all about the actual live show also? How important, because you've played festivals like Lollapalooza and Woodstock long before the current state of like music festival hysteria even started. You've been playing... festivals for so long. So how important are all those aspects put together?
3: It's all relevant, pretty much. You know, and one of the main things that we always maintain to try to do is, you know, have a very entertaining live show, very energetic live show. It's something that we pride ourselves in. You know, we work at it. We try to deliver the best show possible. We never take it like it's a walk in the park. We never Mm. just go through the motions. You know, no matter what we're feeling before the show, somehow, you know, we all just snap into it when the music starts. You know, because we've been doing it so long, I believe it's in it's innate. You know, this yeah, is something it's that part is. Of your us now. Yeah. For us at this point, you know, being that it is now, you know, part of our DNA, it's now more of a thing where we're competitive. You know, we're still very competitive <laughs> on we wanna yeah. be, you know, the best the best thing that people saw that night
1: mm-hmm.
3: and this this transfers over to any anything i do with any band you know like you know when i went over to prophets of rage it was a like-minded mentality there as well you know that everybody wanted to be the best band of the night so this is something that you know has has carried on with me throughout my career but most importantly yes with Cypress, you know it was it, it was a big deal to us to be able to b- blow people off stage or to compete with bands that are possibly heavier or their music is slightly more aggressive, you know, because in the festival setting, you deal with, you know, a bunch of different genres put up on one stage and everything has a different energy. And, you know, you want to be that, or we want it to be that, you know, that show that everybody talks about at the end of the night, no matter where you, what time Mm -hmm. you saw us, whether it was early in the day or mid evening or the show, closer, you know, either way, you were going to walk away talking about us. And that, that was due to, you know, us always giving a hundred percent effort when we were on the stage, when we're on the stage, you know, it's to this day. And, you know, I think, you know, the reason we're able to keep up this energy is because, you know, we all keep, you know, active and we all stay fit and we all try to live well and clean and whatnot when you got to, you know, carry songs for an hour and a half, three days a week with one day off going back into another run of maybe four shows in a row.
1: yeah. You sort of so got to be in
3: shape for this. So And so doing 20, 26, 27 years of that, you know, it's it's just it helped us to be a great live band. You know, we're, we're able to, to be up there with anyone and hold our own. If not, blow their asses out. Yeah,
2: <laughs> but I mean, is there any? I'm not going to repeat that because in my accent, I, I would I would sound very silly saying "blow your asses out." But <laughs> but is there? That a, pretty cool to me. <laughs> blow your asses out. Is there a is there a band or a show that gave you that feeling when you were younger, before Cypress Hill, before you started rapping, before your art form became so innate and you know ingrained in your life? was there a band or a concert that you watched that you thought to yourself, this is exactly what I want to be doing? This is, this is the feeling I want to have or give other people?
3: Yes, absolutely. There was two bands, I mean, three, sorry. Mm. There were three. Uh, I saw KRS-One perform live oh, at a wow. club called Speed in 1987 or 88. And it was a, a small, you know, hole-in-the-wall style club. And the sound wasn't so great, but he went up there and with tremendous energy rocked it. And, mm. you know, that left me affected. You know, I'm like, that's the way you do things right there. And then uh, maybe a year later, I got a chance to see um Leaders of the New School. They were a small club in a small club. And it was a shoebox style stage where, you know, there's three members and that's all they could fit on the stage. Mm. And they couldn't move around. They stood in one one particular position, right? They, they they stood right in their places, but the energy they gave with their body and the delivery of their rhymes, I was just like, man, these guys, this energy right here, this this energy right here on stage, that's the deal right there. And, uh, wow. you know, Public Enemy. Seeing <laughs> the, sheer, the sheer energy and craziness of their show along with the aggressive music that, you know, it was Public Enemy Music. I mean, those probably were the three that influenced me live. This is where it's at, you know. And if I'm going to do this, I'm going to be on this level of it. Mm. You know, we're going to be on this level of it. And fortunately, we got there, you know.
2: Oh, my gosh. Did you get there? Of course, yeah, totally. You you <laughs> got there quickly. It was Buster Rhymes in the in that trio at that time when you saw... Leaders of the New School. Yeah. That's crazy. Because also yeah, it, you got to see him before he also went on to a huge oh yeah. career.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. I knew him in that time. You know, we were we were barely coming up, but we were fans. So, you know, whenever we'd get a chance to go see him, we would definitely go see him. And then, you know, when we eventually got into the game, you know, we met Buster. And, and we re- we met all of them, actually. You know, Dinko, Charlie, and Buster. And we were all really good friends, and Buster and I remained, you know, really good friends for a long time. And, you know, I saw him as he he was going through the transition of becoming a solo artist. Mm. And, you know, it was really amazing to see him flourish on his own and show, you know, the world that he could hold his own, you know, as a solo artist. And man, I mean, he, he did that. He owned it, you know, and... Those Mm -hmm. of us that knew him pretty much knew he could. You know, he was that guy. And he influenced me, you know, to do stuff outside of Cypress Hill, like, you know, go outside of the box. You know, people are always going to expect that. But if you hit them with something different, you know, you could make an impact on your own. Don't always just put yourself in a box. And that helped me to grow as an artist because when I would come back to Cypress Hill, you know, I'd have a whole different skill set, a whole different uh type of way of attacking, you know, writing songs just because of what you learn in in other projects.
2: Yeah, I mean, you've released solo material as well as side projects, obviously like Serial Killers and Prophets of Rage, not to mention there's been tons of guest appearances with legendary artists as well. So does that collaboration almost energize you or is it more that you just want to work in as many different styles and kind of configurations as possible to make sure that you are keeping interested and fresh that your brain is continuously working
3: yeah i think it's a combination of all that really you know in the early 90s when we started i didn't do too many collaborations we didn't do that with cypress hill we didn't like ask people to be on the record you know it was very much our own thing, and we we kept it sacred and didn't invite too many to to be a part of what we were doing creatively. The other part was Sony probably didn't want me out there featuring on so many other records Mm -hmm. at the time. It wasn't until later where, you know, I started doing, you know, some of these collabs and, uh, you know, people asking me to get on because, you know, when you're in a group, sometimes that overshadows you as what you are as an individual artist you know mm-hmm. and your capabilities you know what i mean so it's like some of us that are in groups we don't get looked at as the top 5 mcs of all time or or any of that shit because we're because we're in a group you know and we don't fall under that category you know but fortunately you know i've had people in in the game who have recognized my skill set outside of the band and have asked me to to do features and stuff like that. And, you know, um, when it started to really ramp up, I was surprised because I didn't know that I was on people's radar like that. You know, when DJ Quick asked me to do something with him, mm-hmm. I was like, really? <laughs> DJ Quick is asking me to do something? All right, cool. Yeah. And, you know, he kind of, and it, and, it, and, it, and it really, really, I mean, I had done a couple features before that, you know, for sure you know, with family-related family, family related projects and stuff like that. But outside of our, you know, circle of family, you know, I, I didn't really do too many features at that point. And DJ Quick, who is, you know, a legendary producer, hit me up and I was, fr- frankly, I was surprised. And then he asked me to do something different that no one else had ever asked me to do. He asked me to, to calm my rap tone down and and do a, a different tone that's not so high pitched like, you know, like the mm-hmm. the early Cypress albums, right? And uh, I thought that was cool. It was refreshing because it gave people a chance to hear a different tone. After the DJ Quick feature, I started getting you know asked by a, a lot of people. To, to, to do features and stuff like that like you know the previous feature that I had was was uh, you know that was huge was with Dr. Dre it was with uh, Nas, KRS-One RBX um, myself and, I, and I, I feel like I'm forgetting somebody but it was uh, on the Aftermath album uh,
1: mm-hmm. for,
3: for Dre you know but after that I didn't get too many you know calls for features and stuff like that but after the DJ quick thing you know, I, my phone started ringing. My, you know, my email started getting <laughs> yeah. hit, and you know, and as as I started going, you know, I started getting hit up by younger j- generation guys, you know, mm-hmm. like the new school guys, and and uh, like ASAP Ferg, and you know, like his generation, and you know, asking me for features there. And I mean, I, I was like, okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, so, well, you know, it, it's it's people recognizing the skill set that, that I have. You have. I yeah. Through. Right, outside of the group. And Absolutely. the other thing is, it's like you said, it, 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 it uh, enables me to, to be with these younger cats and keep my mind and skill set sharp for what's going on today. I think that's a part of the reason why I'm one of, uh, you know, a couple handfuls of golden age artists or whatever they're calling us mm. <laughs> in terms of the 90s hip hop um, that still works. And still gets out there and and does collaborative work with the youngsters and, you know, just still active and functioning and stuff like that. You know, there's a few of us out there, but that's what's helped me keep out there. I mean, I did my Mm. three mixtapes and I got younger artists, you know, to to be a part of it. And then unknown artists come on and I produced the beats and I would jump on, you know, the songs with them and just created a whole different get down with that and then I did my solo record with Duck Down Mm. and then I did another solo record called The Prescription and you know just constantly working keeping the skill set, you know, keeping the the sword sharp.
2: I like the way that you said that even working with some artists like Dr. Dre, that helped you harness a different vocal range as well and little vocal tone. And, you know, your way is incredibly visceral. It's like it's a very emotional approach to, to hip hop and to rap. And so for me, what I'm most curious about is when you were growing up, was that the genre that you were hearing around the house? What What were your parents playing at home or your family members? What were you listening to that got you to a point where you would eventually take that inspiration as well?
3: Well, you know, my father was listening to old school, like doo-wop type of ah, stuff, like stuff from the cool. 50s. Stuff from the 50s and uh, mm. my mother was listening to, you know, more like... Uh, Spanish stuff, because she, you know, from Cuba and all that. So she was listening to, you know, a lot of salsa, merengue, and and, uh, things like that. And my brothers and sisters were listening to, you know, what is considered oldies right now. Some of the stuff from the (laughs) 50s, but a a lot of the, the stuff that is like from the 60s and 70s and you know, they were listening to a little bit of that. And then me on my own listening, you know, and my mother listened to classic rock too, like the Beatles and, and, and shit like that. So mm-hmm. I grew up listening to stuff like that. Me on my own, I was listening to rock. I was listening to metal music. Oh, wow. And Run DMC wow. was, I mean, I, I appreciated rap music in terms of, you know, like Grandmaster Flash, Cold Crush Brothers, and, and the Furious Five, and and uh, all all the legends that had, had, you know, hit it before Run DMC, Curtis Blow, Sugar Hill, and all that. But Run DMC is what really like locked me in mm. to what hip hop was, and they they were probably like they're for us they're considered first generation, but I believe they're one and a half, and <laughs> uh, you know yeah. they were the ones that uh, pretty much hooked me in because their first album you know they had a lot of rock influence on it you know there was like rock guitars live Mm. drums stuff like that and that appealed to me because I was a rock fan, but they were doing their vocals in a different style that was unique and that, that pretty much reeled me in. And, and I started listening to hip hop religiously after that, most especially Run DMC though, because I mean, they were the kings, they were the pioneers, you know, after mm. that it was LL Cool J, um, Beastie Boys, mm. eventually Public Enemy, Rock Him, Run DMC, Big Daddy Kane, um, Cool G Rap, you know all those. <laughs> mm,
2: I know it's en- the truth. Is it's such an endless list because I feel like that was that was a golden age. You know that's the it's like the eighties, which is when I grew up as well. It's you know Run DMC. Yeah. Where I grew up in South Africa, Run DMC was like one of the first CDs that we all could like buy. You know, and it was like it was yeah. one. Of, it was the most. It was revolutionary, and I love that you mentioned that yeah. it had those rock tones and it had the instrumentation that you would link to, you know, rock music and how people don't realize how the genres didn't ever stay separate. You were influenced by who was good and who made you feel, you know? So I love right. that you mentioned that. So was was Run DMC, did you see them in concert as like one of your first concerts that you ever saw? Or did you, do you remember? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. no, yeah. They were
3: the first one. I believe it was Raising Hell. It was at the Coliseum and uh, it was mind blowing because, you know, they had a whole stage production, you know, it was amazing. They had the Beastie Boys, Houdini and and LL Cool J on that particular tour. And I got to say, you know, it was the best thing I ever saw because it shaped my mind on, what I'd be doing (laughs) for Mm. the rest
2: of my life. Mm. And also how you tackle performance as well. To see a, a band like that, an artist like that, really draw in the crowd in the way that they do. And the way that you, you know, how Cypress Hill does, how Prophets of Rage, you know, pretty much anything you've worked on. Is there like one show with the band, with Cypress Hill, that you find is just the craziest the craziest live show that you've ever performed? I'm
3: going to say it was probably Woodstock uh, 94, 93, 94. It was that one because that was like close to half a million people. And, you know, we had had never seen a mass like that move to our music. We weren't as seasoned as we are now. We're a better band now than we were then considerably, you know. But, uh, you know, that, that was probably the craziest one. I mean, it was nuts. I lost my shoes and socks when I jumped into the crowd. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> Damn, how did you lose your
2: socks as well? Did people take your socks off?
3: <laughs> people t- took. They started with my shoes, and eventually got my socks too. I, I got back up, <laughs> up on stage barefooted.
2: I mean, that's it's well
3: documented.
2: How often do you jump into the crowd? Is that what you plan to do, or are you just like fuck it? I'm going to do it. I'm going to get in that crowd.
3: But yeah, sometimes it's it's. Very much thought out and like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna wait for the moment and then I'm gonna go. And then there's other times where it's not even in my mind; it's just a spontaneous thing that, like, you know, it'll come from nowhere. But back then, I mean, we used to jump all the time. Send Dog and I would have contests on who could get the furthest <laughs> out and shit like that. So, you know, it was uh, it was very much. It was just we were having fun. You know, we we mm. knew that if we had fun to our music they would have fun to our music and they did and and we did and and it just was all a part of the thing and uh you know, I stopped doing it as I got as I put on some weight as I got older because I didn't want to hurt nobody, so I stopped going out there. But, but I
2: know, reckon, I reckon off. we can carry you. I reckon you can do it, you <laughs> and Sandug. I yeah. reckon you can do it.
3: <laughs> well, I have, I have, you know, in the last couple of years, gone back out in the crowd here and there because you know I've gotten myself back to No, you fighting shape. Yeah. Care.
2: But I think it's amazing that yeah. uh, a lot of, you know, I love that you say that you lost your shoes and socks. But, like, all those years of, like, jumping into the crowd and being that close to fans, like, what is that feeling? What Can you even describe that feeling?
3: It's, it's pretty much indescribable. But, you know, um, but what you do feel is the love that people have for you. Because, I mean, they're with you. They're having fun. They're, you know, like, they're a part of the show at this mm-hmm. point. You know what I mean? Because they're, they're carrying you around, and they get to touch the artists that they came to see. So, you know, I, I think it's a great experience for the artist and and the fan. You know, um, I, I always feel you know an, an enormous amount of of love and respect from our fans. You know, when I when I do jump, even if I don't jump, I feel that. But
2: oh gosh, especially yeah. Especially when you do. And also, things really, I think, for Cypress Hill, they really started to. They they grew so quickly, you know, when you started to get radio play and your singles were, you know, a hit very, very quickly. So how did it feel to go from rapidly growing crowds, larger and larger and larger? And as you said, if you're playing a festival ball and you on stage, you could probably, I'm sure you probably saw people running toward you, you know, to to catch the set. So how did it feel to rapidly start playing to larger crowds?
3: It felt great, you know, to see... Our, uh, our audience growing and you know we were growing with them so you know we just but the way we attacked it was the same whether it was a small club middle you know middle sized club or mm. or huge arena or festival we were going to attack it with the same energy you know obviously as artists you have your favorite type of venues and stuff like that you know Sometimes the intimate ones are are the ones that artists favor, but to me, I like them all because, you know, everything is a different energy and I'm about that. The goal is always to attack every gig, small or huge, um, as, you know, as 100% energy, like, you know, it's like a sport you know you're playing to win that's our mentality when when we hit when we hit the stage no matter what stage that is
2: mm, it's really vital but so what was it like then the first time that you hit the stage at Cypress Hill like did you know you were embarking on something Important that would change your life, or were you nervous and apprehensive at all?
3: You know, you're always slightly nervous as an artist, you know, because you don't know how people are going to receive you. And uh, at the beginning points, definitely, (laughs) you're a little bit more. uh, It's a little bit nerve wracking, but as you get into a groove, you get used to it, and it's nervous energy, but it's not the same energy you had, you know, starting off. But you know, doing the first shows with Cypress in New York were were the most pressure points because it's New York and it's like, it's very much like the cliche says, if you could make it (laughs) there, you could make it anywhere and, you know, we were very much in tune with that, like we had to win them over we were hoping to win them over and to a point we had to know that we could win them over and that meant you know, going out on stage and not You know, giving a fuck what was going on, just performing 100% energy and wherever it ended up is where it was meant to be. And, you know, fortunately, Mm -hmm. we were well received because of our energy and how raw it was. And, you know, it it left a big mark on people's minds like, Mm -hmm. hey, we need to, you know, follow this band here. Even in that time, you know, when uh, that particular style wasn't necessarily the thing. We sort of made it the
2: thing. It's true. I was thinking of that the other day and how many kind of barriers you landed up breaking and how many things that you did that really defied a lot of the misconceptions about the genre. There was just that feeling of fun and energetic and, you know, real. So was that something that you all found you learned from each other? Or was it just magic when you got in the studio together That's how you tackled the genre at the time.
3: I think it was a a lot of work, a lot of, uh, you know, chemistry building between us. You know, we we were always on the same page on the type of music we liked, you know, because we were friends before we started making music. You know, it was a hobby to us, you know, something we loved. And in that time, we we built a, a certain bond between us and chemistry. And I think it translated into the studio. But it still took a lot of work and crafting to get the sound we wanted to get to sound the way we wanted to sound unlike everyone else and you know we didn't know that we'd be pioneering anything we just wanted to put something <laughs> out that people were gonna like aside from ourselves you know we loved it but you know we didn't know if anybody else would so just something that happened organically and you know we we had Continue to build that for a number of, of years, you know, in the studio and in our live show.
2: How do you then sustain like all of the projects that you've been working on and touring for so many years and having those really high energy, full force shows? You, you mentioned a little bit earlier, like staying clean and healthy is really important. But is that really what's kept you you know, at the top of your game for so many years. How how have you continuously, you know, had a good relationship with touring and being on the road and working hard?
3: The more you do it, the better you get at it. You know, and we've done a lot of touring and we still maintain to doing a lot of touring and shows and stuff like that. So if we had quit for a number of years, yeah, we'd probably be a little bit shaky every time we try to get back on the horse. But because we maintain you know such a consistent level of touring we don't slow down you know we continue to hone our craft
2: yeah i spoke to sen i spoke to sen last year because we were doing this whole thing on the simpsons anniversary and he, he and i were chatting about you know the the whole parody the lollapalooza parody and how amazing it was that you were on that episode looking back at the first song the first cypress hill song that you performed you know, where you knew it really got the whole crowd going crazy? Because, you know, the whole Simpsons thing, that was a huge deal for a lot of huge TV and Simpsons fans. But do you remember the first song that you felt, wow, this, we've got the whole crowd? Oh,
3: that's a hard one. Uh, Probably it was Hand on the Pump. There was a show we did, you know, early on, we did Hand on the Pump. And it was a song that we didn't think and, you know, we didn't know what kind of re- reaction people were going to give to it, but it became one of our more powerful live orientated songs. People just started stirring up and moshing and going crazy to it. And I, I never anticipated that.
2: But so you'll now be doing a huge world tour along with the upcoming album, which I'm so excited for. So how, how are you preparing for that? What kind of things do you have in store?
3: We're going to do what we do traditionally, which is play um, a mixture of a lot of our catalog, but we're going to figure out how to work the, the new music from Elephants on Acid in there to give people an experience in, in that new music and stuff like that. And sometimes, you know, um, when you when you put new albums out, and you're you're a legacy act, you know people get disappointed if you play, play too many songs, new, uh, of songs, the new songs. You new know songs. I mean? <laughs> yeah, because they haven't uh, had really lived with them yet and, mm, and get mm-hmm. to know them. You know what I mean? And so we're putting you know elephants out on acid out in September, and we're going to be touring by that time. So we're definitely going to work some songs into the set from from the new ones. We just haven't figured out exactly which songs. definitely band of gypsies will be in there but uh we'll be going into rehearsals pretty soon and we're, we're going to figure out how we mesh some of the old and, and new stuff together
2: i love that you said that people get so upset when they haven't like lived with a song but it's true it's because the also the your most well-known songs are so well-known. It's not just, they're not just normal, oh yes, I know this band's discography. It's people have lived with that for decades now. Do you feel like you know exactly which crowd is going to respond to your some of your original songs? Oh yeah.
3: <laughs> you know, you, in playing so many years now, so many festivals, so many shows, you could sort of get the pulse of, of what it's going to be depending on the festivals we do and who we're playing with. You know, we we craft a different experience for them because you know not every not every crowd responds the same way to a a, a specific show that you put together. So, um, you know, we very much keep that in mind. We try to have our hand on the pulse. If it's just our fans, they eat up whatever we play, and that's. <laughs> <laughs> but when it's uh when it's a festival setting or you're opening or co-headlining for someone else, it's, it's tricky, and you've got to sort of. You got to sort of know and not be too prideful and say, "Well, I know this song is going to work; it works every time." And and blah 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 blah. You know, it doesn't necessarily work like that. You mm-hmm. know, and it, it takes a number of years to know that. You know, when you got to switch your setup for it to work for for a certain crowd. Well,
2: you, know? you have to have that talent as well to be able to do that, and especially as you're saying, you've played hundreds of shows in multiple countries around the world with so many different cultures and so many different languages, is there one show that sticks out for you that was in a foreign country where you just like, I cannot believe, I never thought that they'd react like this to our music, this American band?
3: Well, I mean, per- pretty much, you know, our first run of Europe, it was like that. We were very surprised. I could name any show there um, <laughs> yeah. where it happened. The first significant one that always stands out in my mind is, is uh, we were playing a metal based festival where we were the only hip hop on the festival and it was in Madrid.
1: Oh wow. And,
3: uh, we're, we were playing after rage against the machine
1: oh, my and gosh. they had
3: just delivered an astounding, incredible killing set. We had to follow that. And, <laughs> and I was like, you know, totally like shit. We got to follow that. And you know, and this at, at this time we were already established. We we're on on our second album at this point, and people knew who we were. But I was surprised that we were headlining, and it's a metal fest, you know. And here we are, hip hop oh band <laughs> head, headline, headlining a metal fest. But you know, I thought, oh man, what what, the, what is this crowd going to do after Rage Against the Machine just went off? <laughs> they're probably gonna leave. <laughs> right.
2: You better but, take those shoes and socks off and run, yeah.
1: <laughs>
3: yeah. Yeah, exactly. But to my surprise, you know, when we started playing from song one to to the end, it was crazy. It was probably the craziest shit I had ever seen in terms of a crowd before Woodstock.
1: Oh wow. Um,
3: it 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 was amazing. I was like fuck uh, you know i was worried for nothing
2: how do you describe like what made it so crazy was it just the people's like facial just expressions the reaction of wow. no, just the fans
3: wow oh just the 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 body the, the body movement the body mm-hmm. language i mean the, it was mosh pit stage diving jumping up and down uh you name it they were doing it and you know we were quite surprised that that would happen after you know, they had just had a full-blown set from Rage Against the Machine. And, you know, we felt quite confident that we can hang, you know, in any, any, uh, <laughs> any setting at that point. You know, there was another thing about that show um, that influenced us in, in years later, which... You know, even though we, we had a great set and the, the crowd reacted amazing, and, and, you know, the press was amazing behind it, even though we had a great set that Rage Against the Machine sonically blew us off stage, you know, mm. their sound was so incredible. So that's when we started experimenting with the live band going out with us and, and trying that for a time.
2: I'm so sad I wasn't there. I feel like I needed to be there because, so moving forward and how wonderful your attitude is in terms of being collaborative and also giving people a platform. What do you feel like the hip hop industry and the rap industry and your genre specifically, what do you feel like it needs?
3: I think it continues to grow and, and uh, evolve into different things, uh, different faces, creating sub genres and stuff like that. So, you know, for me, it's, it's, people just got to keep being creative and come up with what they come up with. But if I th- you know, if there was any one thing needed, it's the bridge on the education from some of the newer rappers to, you know, the old school shit. So that they have an education on where this comes from so that they could have a different appreciation. So that it's not all about just business and becoming famous and, you know, um, trying to become rich, that there is also an appreciation for the art form. You know, and it's not just, you know, not just to have all this materialistic shit. Hey, have what you want, you know, mm-hmm. if you could make it, take it, you know what I mean? But you got to still have an appreciation for the art form you're doing. And I think there's somewhat of a lack of that because some artists mm-hmm. are just going out there and they don't give a fuck. You know, they, they mm-hmm. don't care if they sound good or not. They're just going out there. They don't care where it came from. You know, it's just a way to become famous and known and make some money. And I think that has damaged the art form slightly, but not that much, you know, because it, it's it's a strong art form and it's going to always continue to grow and be relevant, you know, for a very long time because of the subgenres that come from it. Exactly. So, um, yeah. You know, so, uh, you know, do what you do. But, uh, you know, just... uh, Know where you
2: came from. (laughs) Try to educate you.
3: You Know where you came from. Yeah. Know know your roots.
2: But it's so true. I love that you said that because I think that especially coming from you, I feel like that is such an important thing that people forget that there was so much shit that you had to deal with when you guys was first starting out as well to try and break down those rules and create new languages for this genre.
3: This genre has it... This, this generation in the genre has it a lot easier because of the stuff that, you know, happened before it, obviously, you know, the trial and error, the bumps in the roads, the learning curves and all that stuff. They don't have to deal with any of that stuff. And then now that it's so much more independent based and you can get your records off and known with without a major record label at the start, you know, that didn't exist. 10 20 years ago like it does today you know it didn't you know a lot of us didn't have the 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 these tools that we have today so it's it's definitely a easier game but obviously mm-hmm. you still got to have talent and um you know <laughs> there's there's not a lack of that
1: mm-hmm. but
3: it's, it's just that that you have a flood of untalented and talented people coming into the game every week and now you have to weed through all that shit so it's just that's the only drawback from it but you know hey everybody's got to take a shot if, if they can so well, that's where it is
2: thank you for being on the show and you're amazing and i can't wait to have the album out in the world i'm sure you feel very excited for this this time now you're in this the sweet spot now
3: Yes, and thank you for having me, and thank you to any fans that have been there from day one or new fans, and we hope you appreciate this artistic piece
1: <laughs> that we're
3: putting out there. And if you're into the cannabis culture, of you should visit Southern California, visit my, my dispensary, Dr. Green Thumbs in Sylmar, and experience the flavors.